My name's Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill, and I get the privilege of leading us this morning as we read and we teach from God's Word. So if you've got your Bible, uh, your iPad, whatever you might use this morning, make your way to the book of Judges. We're going to find ourselves this morning in Judges chapter 17. So go ahead and make your way there. We're getting closer to the end of the book, but make your way to Judges chapter 17. And as you're doing that, I'm going to read something else to you by way of introduction. In, in 2005, author David Foster Wallace gave the commencement address at Kenyon College. At the time, Wallace was one of the most acclaimed writers in, in America. Some people, including Time Magazine, had him as one of the best American writers of what was then the 21st, but going from the late 20th into the 21st century. And David Foster Wallace gave the commencement address at Kenyon College, and he took his place behind the podium. And I want you to hear what he said as he addressed the graduates that year. He said, a huge percentage of the stuff that I tend to be automatically certain of is, as it turns out, totally wrong and diluted. That's his opening line. Here's one example of the utter wrongness of something that I tend to be automatically sure of. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. We rarely talk about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive, but it's also pretty much the same for every single one of us deep down. It's our default setting. Just think about it for a minute. There's no experience that you've ever had that you were not at the absolute center of in your own eyes. The world as you experience it is right there, either in front of you or behind you, to the left of you or the right of you, on your TV, on your monitor or whatever. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are immediate and urgent and real and you can begin to get the idea. But please, don't worry that I'm getting ready to preach to you about compassion or others' directedness or the so-called virtues. This is not a matter of virtue. It's a matter of my choosing to do the work of somehow altering or getting free of my natural hardwired default setting, which is to be so deeply and literally self-centered and to see and interpret everything in my world through the lens of self. Now, I want you in particular to hear where Foster Wallace goes with this. Because here's something else that's true, he said. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we're going to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. And listen to the honesty that's beginning to come out of Foster Wallace. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel that you have enough. If you worship the truth, you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you, you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing themselves, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. If you find yourself worshiping power, you'll feel weak and afraid, and you'll need even more power over others to keep your own fear at bay. Find yourself worshiping your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on and so on. And then he said, the trick is keeping the truth 
upfront in daily consciousness. David Foster Wallace was not a follower of Jesus, but he had observed something true about his own heart and the world around him. There is no such thing, he said, as not worshiping. See, the truth and the reality is God created and hardwired all of humanity to worship. In the beginning, in the garden, Adam and Eve, hardwired by God, created in his image and likeness to worship. Their lives were lived as daily reflections of worship to the one who had created them. Everything they did on a daily basis, one writer said, was basically an echo or a riff or an amen to all that God had made and said was good. This response to who God was for them, this, this daily living a life of worship is what writer Harold Best calls a continuous outpouring. And I love that picture. God created humanity. He created mankind to be continuously pouring out. What that means is that in a way we think, the way we live, where our faith goes, what drives and compels our actions in life is meant to be a pouring out of praise and joyful faith in who God is and his glory and his goodness that's all around us. That's what it was like for Adam and Eve in the beginning. As we're pouring out that joyful praise, that joyful faith in our life, God is seen for who he is and he receives the glory that he deserves. And our worship is seen in the way we think and the way we live and the things we do, our whole heart and our whole life. God created you fundamentally to be a worshiper. It's essential to what it means to be human. Even David Foster Wallace was able to put his finger on that. You were made to worship. And here's the thing. It's easy to talk about that being the reality for Adam and Eve walking in the cool of the garden. God had created them. But you know what? That fundamental reality that God created you to worship and that your life is meant to be a continuous outpouring of worship, it did not change when sin entered the picture. When sin entered the picture in the lives of Adam and Eve back in Genesis chapter three, the fundamental identity of worship did not all of a sudden stop. That continuous outpouring, the tap didn't get turned off on it. Do you know what happened? That continuous outpouring, if you use that picture, that pouring out like water, it just got redirected. It continues to pour out. There is no such thing as not worshiping. You were created to worship. What happens with sin is that that worship gets redirected. God is no longer the fountainhead of that worship. Your life is still a reflection and a pouring out of worship. It's just not going to where it was designed to go. This is what the Apostle Paul would say to the church in Rome when talking about Adam and Eve in the garden when he said that they exchanged the glory of the immortal God and be worshiped and worshiped and poured out with their life and served created things rather than the creator. That's what David Foster Wallace was trying to communicate to those graduates in 2005 when he said in the day-to-day -day trenches of life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. God created you to worship. You fundamentally are a worshiper. Sin does not turn the tap off on that worship. It simply redirects it. And when we look at that redirected worship, when we look at that misdirected worship throughout the whole of the Bible, it tends to come under one particular heading or one particular theme or label that some of us are familiar with, and it's the label of idolatry. 
Idolatry is simply at its core misdirected worship. The continuous outpouring of people's lives is not coming from the fountainhead of who God is and in response to who he is with joy and faith. It's often directed to things that, that as Foster Wallace said, left to themselves will eat us alive. God's people, as we go through the entire story of the Bible, they they find themselves continuously redirecting or or rerouting the pouring out of their life. And I love the way the prophet Ezekiel will deal with it with Israel. He'll he'll say that, that God's people have taken, Ezekiel 14, taken idols into their heart. And they've set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. See, in this idolatry that we read about in the Bible, this misdirected worship, it's it's something that we take into our heart and set before our face. It gazes, we gaze at it, and it it collects our attention. It's what our eyes and and our desires become galvanized upon. We've set it in front of our hearts, we've set it in front of our faces, we've taken it in. If we leave it there, it will eat us alive. Because those idols, they can't deliver They become a stumbling block. And so you'll get all the way into the New Testament and you'll find John writing to the church. You know, say, little children, out of great love for God's people, for the church, little children, above all things, keep yourself from idols. Keep yourself from these things that redirect the worship pouring out of your life. Keep yourself from these things that you so easily set before your face, take into your heart and put before your eyes. Things that will eat you alive. Israel did not do a good job of keeping themselves from idols. Over and over and over in the book of Judges, we've seen a refrain begin to repeat itself throughout the book. God's people continued, it'll say, to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 3 and 4 and 6 and 10 and 12 and 13, they all continue to mention this. Idolatry has been the downfall of God's people. Misdirected worship has been the downfall of God's people in the book of Judges. This pattern has come where they have done what was evil in God's eyes. Their their worship has been misdirected. The pouring out of their lives has been going somewhere else. And so God disciplines them in that and judges them in that and then raises up a deliverer to lead them out from the oppression that God allowed them to find themselves in because of their idolatry. We've seen that cycle over and over and over again. Well, now we hit chapter 17 and that cycle's done. You're not gonna see that anymore. We're not gonna see this this picture of God's people in idolatry and God raising up deliverers and God setting them free. No, chapters 17 through 20 make up the conclusion of the book of Judges. And it's a double conclusion, just like the first few chapters were a double introduction. Let me give you a picture of what's happening, and then we're going to drill down to 17, and I'm going to try to help you see how everything that I've said makes sense here. But chapters 17 through 20 are the conclusions, and those two conclusions really are the mirror images of the two introductions. And one writer, David Jackman, he he was very helpful in this, and he said, the earlier passages in Judges showed us how God rescued Israel. That's what we saw over and over again how God raised up deliverers to rescue Israel. But these chapters, chapters 17 through 20, they give case studies of the kind of condition, especially spiritual condition, God rescued Israel from. So if you think about all we've seen with the judges, we got the refrain that they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, God judged them, and then God raised up a deliverer to set them free. And all those stories are how God delivered them from oppression, right? Now in 17 through 20, we're gonna go down on the ground to a bird's eye view. What did that evil in the eyes of the Lord actually look like? Not just generically anymore, 
They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They gave themselves and their hearts over to idols of the Canaanites. Now, what did it look like? What was God actually delivering them from? And so in chapters 17 and 18, we're going to get a bird's eye view, a case study of what it looked like when God's people did what was evil in his eyes spiritually. And then in chapters 19 and 20, we're going to get a case study of what it looks like when God's people have given their hearts over to something other than God and how it plays out ethically and morally in their lives. The consequences, not just for their heart, but for the way they actually live. That's what it's going to look like in the next few chapters. But this morning, we're just going to concern ourselves with chapter 17. And in particular, probably just a portion of chapter 17 because it helps set the stage for how the rest of the book is going to finish. And in chapter 17, we're going to get a case study of what this misdirected worship actually looked like in the lives of God's people. What did it look like in the lives of Israel? We're going to look at this idolatry play itself out, but it's not going to be like you think. It's not going to be the idolatry that's so obvious as, as forming an image of a fish like Dagon or, or building a pole like, like the, the Asherahs that were in the backyards of Gideon's father. It's going to be a more subtle idolatry. And it's not a more subtle idolatry like the one that Foster Wallace would talk about, that we often talk about, how our hearts are given over to things like beauty and things like power and things like money and how we make those seemingly good things in our life main things and they end up becoming destructive things. That's, that's not what we're going to see either. In particular, the case study that we get here in chapter 17 that bleeds into chapter 18 that gives rise to what we're going to see in 19 and 20 is a much more subtle form of misdirected worship, a much more subtle form of idolatry. In the first commandment that God gave his people in the wilderness, he said, you shall worship no other God before me, right? Pretty easy to spot when someone decides to worship Dagon over Yahweh. But he gave a second commandment right after that. You're not supposed to make any graven images either. That commandment deals particularly with the desire that is very real in the hearts of God's people to try to take him and shape him. To try to take God and shape God in a way that's right in our own eyes. You're not supposed to make any image of me because any image that you would make of me in an attempt to rightly worship me can never actually be complete. It's you trying to form something of me that's pleasing to you. And he says, you can't do it. It's a much more subtle form of misdirected worship. It's a much more subtle form of idolatry, but it's all too real for God's people then. It's all too real for God's people now. And so we're going to see it play out in chapter 17 and, and look at the implications of it so that we can begin to recognize it in our own lives. What does it look like when the hearts of God's people are misdirected? How can we recognize it so that we can push back against it in our own lives. So if you've got your Bibles, Judges chapter 17, that's where we're gonna be this morning. I want you to put your finger there and then I want you to turn left. Turn left in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 12. I wanna read something from Deuteronomy chapter 12 to you and then I want you to hear what I'm gonna read in Judges chapter 17 in the context of this and you'll see how they go together in a moment. So put your finger in Judges 17, turn left to Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 12, listen to what God says in verse 1. These are the statutes and the rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess. Call the days you live on the earth. So this is before God gives his people the land that now in Judges we see them trying to possess. When you get there, 
You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Notice he didn't say you shall not worship their gods, but you shall not worship me in the way that they worship. Here's what you should do though, verse five. You shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contributions that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice you and your households and all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So God said, when you get there, I'm gonna tell you the place to go. The tabernacle will be in the place that I determine. And it's in the tabernacle that the presence of the Holy of Holies, the presence of God will reside where the cloud of glory would sit over the tabernacle. It's there that you go to make your offerings. It's there that you go to worship. And then he says in verse eight, you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today. Everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Those were the Lord's words to his people before they go to the land. Now, Judges chapter 17. Flip back over. What does it look like when the hearts of God's people are misdirected? Judges chapter 17, verse one. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. Micah literally means who is like Yahweh. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. So right away, we're going to meet the family that our story is surrounding. Now, now we're going into the tents of God's people. We've heard about how he delivered them. Now we're going into their tent to see what he delivered them from. And we meet Micah. It's quite a dubious man. It takes a certain level of character to be so selfish and so dishonest and so entitled to steal from your own mother. You catch this, right? 1,100 pieces of silver Micah stole from his mother. And then he gives them back. So we want to think, well, he got convicted and he's going to get, he didn't get convicted at all. What happened? His mom pronounced a curse on the thief who stole her money. And Micah heard about that curse because he, she said it in his ears. And all of a sudden, out of a superstitious fear for some kind of curse that might come down on him because he stole the money that was his mother's, he gives it back. This is our family. And so when this would be read amongst God's people throughout history, and verse one would be read, there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. That means who is like Yahweh. It's supposed to be a responsive reading. And you're gonna go, no one. Not Micah, that's for sure. Because from the very beginning, we see no reflection of the character of the one in whom he's named after. But he gives the money back. And his mother, you can keep reading, said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son. So now she's gonna take the money that he stole and gave back and consecrate it to the Lord. I'm gonna give all that money over to the Lord now. Now there was a reason and a place and a way that that would happen. You would go to the place that God had set and God had established where his tabernacle would be. It was in the town of Shiloh. And if you were gonna make such a consecration, you would take the gift there. 
I'm going to dedicate the silver the Lord from my, has given from my hand for my son, uh-oh, to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So she gives it to Micah in verse 4. When he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. Well, the writer uses some very specific language there. It's the exact same words used in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, where the Lord says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You're supposed to be hearing something in your mind when you hear this. Wait a minute. You're not supposed to do the exact thing that she just decided to do with the money that her son had stolen and given back to her that she was going to consecrate to the Lord. She now, for the Lord's sake, is going to go make an image. And it was in the house of Micah, the writer says in verse 4. And the man Micah also had a shrine. And he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. Now, do you remember what God had just said in Deuteronomy 12? Deuteronomy 12, verse 5, you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. It's there you shall go. It's there where the presence of the Lord will reside. It's there where you take your vows, where you take your offerings, where you take your gifts, where you make your sacrifices. It's there that you go with your family to worship in the way that I have revealed and the way that I have prescribed. Well, that's not convenient enough for Micah at this point. So Micah makes his own space. Did you catch that? Now he's got his own images and he's got his own space. He's even got his own ephod. He's even got his own garments that the priests would wear that had jewels on it that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. He's gonna have his own there. And you know what? He looks at his son, says, I need a priest. I'm gonna ordain my son to be my priest. Rather than worshiping God the way that he had revealed, Micah decides he's gonna do it in the way that he's pleased by. And then we get an assessment of the situation from the author's point of view. And this is the refrain for the rest of the book. Verse six. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The very opposite of what God had said in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse eight. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today. Everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. Now, the story goes on and the rest of the story feeds into what we see in chapter 18. So we're just gonna stop here for right now. Because this gives us a picture of what's underneath, ultimately, everything we're going to keep reading about. You see, you've got to catch that Micah and his mom and the rest of his family, they did not decide that they were going to give their hearts over to Dagon. They weren't worshiping Chemosh. There were no altars to the Baals or poles to the Asherahs in their backyard. Everything that they're doing here in chapter 17, they're doing in the name of Yahweh. All the things we see Micah establishing in his home, they're all trappings of what God had prescribed rightly for his people. Micah has just determined that he is going to do it in his own way. This, my friends, if I could come up with a title that will help us better understand it, this is what can be called respectable idolatry. Jerry Bridges, some of you are familiar with Jerry Bridges, wrote a book a number of years ago. I would encourage you to read it. It's called Respectable Sins, the sins that we all tolerate. What Micah and his family are doing here is what you can call respectable idolatry. Idolatry that God's people often tolerate. Respectable idolatry is the shaping of God to fit my sensibilities and to fit my convenience. Respectable idolatry is a religion of control 
and convenience, the ultimate of virtues in American society. Underneath all respectable idolatry is ultimately an impulse to control God, to make him manageable, to shape him so that who he is and what he says is right in our own eyes. The parts of God and the parts of his word that we don't like and that we don't find convenient, we either choose to ignore or we simply reject. Because a God that we can shape to become one who's right in our own eyes is a God that we can control. He fits our sensibility and he fits the sensibilities of the world around us. And so to keep ourselves from falling into this respectable idolatry, here's what we need to do. We must worship God in response to who he has revealed himself to be, not just the aspects of him or his word that we like the most. If there is one response to what we see in the story and that we're going to tease out for the rest of our time, it's simply this. To push back against the impulse of respectable idolatry, to keep ourselves from falling into the same traps that Israel found itself in of respectable idolatry. You and I are going to have to worship God as he reveals himself to be through his word, not simply what we like about him or what he says. Worshiping God based on what we like about him, choosing to reject or ignore the rough edges, it's not real worship at all. The essence of the second commandment was aimed directly at this practice of respectable idolatry. It's why we don't make images of him. It's why what Micah and his mother did when they consecrated some of that money and had those images made, it was a form of respectable idolatry, much like the golden calf that Aaron made when Moses was on top of the mountain after God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. Do you remember? Aaron made a golden calf. And all of God's people began to worship and dance and celebrate around that golden calf. He wasn't worshiping another God. Aaron was trying to portray an aspect of God's character that they were responding to with their life. The power and the strength of a bull, the one who had just led them out of slavery. But that image could not depict and display the fullness of who God is. It was picking something about God that they liked and responding to it. No singular image can show the fullness of who he is. How do, you, how do you portray not only his power, but his mercy? His love, but yet his holiness. What's happening in the household of Micah is an expression of a heart that wants to pick and choose the pieces of God that were most appealing. Listen to how Tim Keller talks about this. He's extremely helpful with this. Keller says that every single culture struggles with the biblical God and how he's revealed himself in different ways. Why? Because he contradicts every single society and every single heart in some way. Ancient cultures were very superstitious and magical and God contradicted that by showing that he could not be worshiped by house gods and spells. Modern cultures are very rationalistic and skeptical of the supernatural and God contradicts that by saving us through the resurrection of Christ and demanding that our hearts be born anew. Some cultures could not believe in a God who forgives such terrible wrongs while our contemporary culture can't believe in a God who punishes and sends people to hell. This is the very reason why God commanded his people to submit to his revelation of who he is as he has revealed himself to be. 
You see, what we see happening in this little case study in chapter 17 so far is that Micah and his mom and the rest of his family are essentially trying to shape God and revise God so that he's manageable and controllable. It's a God with all of his uncomfortable aspects, all the aspects of his word and his character that cross their sensibilities, having them removed. Having everything that he says that ultimately isn't convenient to them dropped. If we're going to keep ourselves from respectable idolatry, you and I must worship God as he reveals himself to be. You see, you and I are no different than Micah and his family. This continuous outpouring that is our life. It's the way God made us to be. It's fundamental to being human. This, continuing, this continuous outpouring of worship that is real in our lives, we always have this temptation to run it through a filter. Right, to put a filter on the tap of our worship that comes out. And what that filter does is it begins to sift out all the rough edges of who God is. All the things that our hearts and our minds and our culture and our sensibilities might find offensive or might make demands on us in a particular way, all of these things, the respectable idolatry filter, seeks to filter that reality of God out so that we might respond to him and worship him as he seems right in our eyes. You find this reality of respectable idolatry working itself out in statements like, I don't believe in a God anymore that could do this. I like to think of God as, you can insert your own Talladega Nights joke there, but we all do it. I like to think of God a certain way. It happens to pastors. We're not immune from respectable idolatry. Do you know how it happens to pastors? I'll put myself on the stool here. We like to think of God a certain way too. And you can see it begin to happen in our own hearts when we only tend to talk about one particular aspect of his character and likeness. When we paint a particular portrait of God in, in one way, and our, our brush strokes tend to sit on one thing, never actually responding and exposing and revealing the fullness of who God has revealed himself to be in his word, we have particular hobby horses that we sit on because we like to think of God a certain way. We like to think of God particularly in, in the way that he's gracious towards sinners while never really dealing with the fact that we have to continue to be fighters of the sin within our own hearts. We have all kinds of different ways that we like to shape and we like to form and knock the rough edges and knock the contours off of certain things about who God is and, and what he says. Even outside the church, you'll find this kind of respectable idolatry masquerading as progress. I can simply no longer accept a God who allows this. I can simply no longer accept a God who does this. You see, what happens with this respectable idolatry, it's an attempt of our sinful heart to shape God to fit what seems right in our eyes or in the eyes of our culture rather than allowing God to reshape our eyes and reshape our heart and reshape our culture. I think a great example for the church, it, it comes from the book No Graven Image. It was written by Elizabeth Elliot. Some of you are familiar with Elizabeth Elliot. It's a novel that Elizabeth Elliot wrote about a missionary who comes to a jungle and through an accident loses everything she worked tremendously hard for. And when Elliot wrote the book and began to go and speak about the book, she began to be deluged with responses from people. And the chief response she got from the church to her novel was this, God would never let such awful things happen to someone who lived for his glory. 
That's an idol. That's a respectable idol. That is the reshaping of God to fit a personal sensibility or a cultural sensibility. It's not choosing another God altogether. It's trying to reshape the one true and living God who has revealed himself to better seem right in our own eyes. Jesus, who lived perfectly for the Father's glory, suffered a horrific death. Why? Because God was showing that he works redemptively through weakness and suffering. We've been seeing it over and over in the book of Judges. You see, if you have a God who does not allow his people to suffer, first of all, life will completely crush you. It will destroy you. And what you'll find is that the despair that you actually feel is ultimately your own fault because you didn't let God be God. And you found yourself pouring out the praise, the flow of your heart to one who wasn't truly God. You had reshaped him to seem right in your own eyes. Respectable idolatry, it's still idolatry. It's still an effort to control God. Friends, if we're gonna keep ourselves from respectable idolatry, we must receive and worship God as he has revealed himself to be. But respectable idolatry is not just a religion of control. Let's be honest, it's a religion of personal convenience as well. Respectable idolatry puts us in the seat of determining that God can never say no to us. We get to set the terms. When we shape him to be what seems right in our eyes or in the, right in the eyes of the world around us, what we're doing is we're shaping a God to put in front of our face that can never actually say no to us. It can never contradict us. It can never challenge our hearts. It can never challenge our desires. It can make no demands of us because we've made him what we want him to be. See, respectable idolatry is beginning to work its way out in our hearts and in our lives when we find ourselves simply choosing to ignore certain aspects of God's character or certain aspects of God's word that we just don't like and we just don't find convenient. And listen to me, this doesn't always have to be a conscious process where you're sitting down at a table with a Bible and reading something and going, yep, yep, don't like that one anymore. It's an unconscious filtering that tends to happen in our hearts when we come, our, come and find ourselves confronted with something about who God is or, or confronted with something that God says and we simply choose to ignore it. We don't allow it to shape us. We don't allow it to challenge us. Micah, he, he established his own center of worship. Why? Because it was easier than going to Shiloh. So he had his own shrine, his own priest, his own ephod, his own God and his own imagination. See, respectable idolatry becomes a religion of convenience because you simply follow the things you like and ignore the things you don't. Do we do that? Do you want me to get real personal on that one? Some people are really sensitive, I'll be careful. Do you know that God throughout the entirety of scripture, in particular in, in the ministry of Jesus, he has more to say about money, how we view it, how we handle it, how we use it, than he does about things like hell? You know why? Ultimately, it's a brilliant indicator of what's going on in the heart. Jesus will say as much so to his disciples. But here's what can happen. 
that the filter of this respectable idolatry filtering out the outpouring of our heart, the continuous worship of our heart, we begin to filter out certain things that he might say and we just simply avoid listening and thinking through the implications of what he has to say. That's what it looks like. So you and I can find ourselves in a place like this for our entire life, growing under the ministry of God's word and the encouragement of God's people. And we can simply allow ourselves to know what God might say about money, how we handle it, how we use it, how we spend it, how he uses it for his glory and the good of others. And we can simply filter it out by not allowing it to challenge our lives and the way we live. By not allowing the implications of what he says to affect the way that we think and the way that we live. Why? Because it's just too inconvenient. I prefer a God who says this. Friends, respectable idolatry is a religion of control and convenience. You saw this same thing happening even in Micah's house. I didn't just pick money out of nowhere. Did you catch that Micah, when he gave his money back to his mom, his mom said that she's going to consecrate the money he stole to the Lord? Did you catch how much she gave to the silversmith to make the idols? How much did Micah steal? 1100 How much did she give? 200 What do you think she did with the rest? Religious, secular, it doesn't matter. It's hypocrisy. Jesus talks so much about our possessions and about money because they're such an indicator of the heart. This kind of respectable idolatry puts this filter on our heart. And one of the ways we can see it happening is by us simply ignoring and not allowing the implications of who God is and what he says about certain things to challenge the way that we actually live, simply because it's not convenient. See, just as you and I should no longer tolerate respectable sins, that's what Bridges was getting after. Just like you and I together should no longer allow each other to tolerate respectable sins in our lives, respectable idolatry, What we do when we try to shape and fit God to to meet our sensibilities and our convenience, we cannot allow each other to tolerate that anymore. Respectable idolatry is still idolatry. It's idolatry just like what David Foster Wallace was talking about in his address. It's a religion with you at the center. Your desires, your wants. Just like the gods of money and power and beauty The gods of your own making, even respectable ones, trying to shape the one true and living God to be right in your own eyes, ultimately proves to be no God at all. And your idols will eat you alive. Friends, God calls us to worship him. For our lives to be a continuous outpouring an outpouring in response to who he is as he has revealed himself to be, a response of joyful faith in who he is and who he has revealed himself to be. It's why he forbids us to make images of him, not just to draw pictures of him in that way to worship, but in our own minds, in our own hearts, to create our own image of who he should be based on what seems right to us. He knows that any kind of image we try to create can never be complete. And so he tells us to not do it because he knows the day is coming when he is going to give us his own image of himself. See, John will write to the church that Jesus, he literally is the image. Same word used, Greek word used in the Hebrew here. He literally is the image of the invisible God. 
God gives us what we need, what we so desperately want to see and touch and try to resemble and make. God gives us in his son. Jesus is the full picture of the fullness of God, who he is, who he continues to be. All of God's attributes and traits are seen for us in Jesus. He reflects, he radiates the fullness of God's glory. So God calls us to worship him. Not an image of our own making. See, respectable idolatry, it's, it's subtle. It can become justifiable. But it's dangerous to the hearts of God's people. And the way out, the way to fight against this kind of self-centered work of respectable idolatry is through repentance. The only way out of respectable idolatry, the only way to continue pushing back against the temptation to filter these things out and to shape God as he seems right in our eyes or in the eyes of the world around us is through repentance. It comes by responding to God on his terms, recognizing that you are indeed a sinner, that you can't save yourself. And the God that you've created in your mind who never says no to you, who never has any implications for your life, the God who has to jump on your terms, that he's no God at all. But he can't save you either. You're a sinner. You've shaped a picture of the one true and living God into an image and a likeness that seems right to you. Repentance happens when we come to see that we are indeed a sinner, an idolater, and we recognize that God has already given us the perfect image and the perfect picture of himself through his son and that Jesus is the only way to real freedom and real salvation. It looks like saying, Jesus, I'm, I'm coming to you on your terms. I'm worshiping you for who you are. I'm turning from trying to shape you into something that seems right in my own eyes or right in the eyes of those around me. I recognize that I do that. I see where I'm doing that. I am repenting. Forgive me for doing that, for trying to shape you and not receive you for who you are and allowing you to shape me. Forgive me for trying to shape you into being something that seems right to me. This is what repentance looks like. And apart from this kind of repentance, there's no real freedom. There's no way out of this respectable idolatry. That's what hurt me so much when I read that commencement address from Foster Wallace. Did you hear the honesty? He said, I'm doing the work of somehow trying to alter or get free from my hard wiring to be deeply and literally self-centered. I'm trying to find out how I can get myself out of it. But the thing is, you can't work yourself out of it. The only way to push back against it and to be free from it is through repentance. That's where freedom comes from. It comes from repentance and faith, the continuous outpouring you were designed for, and it happens through repentance and faith in the one true living God as he has revealed himself to be through his son. This morning, you're gonna have the opportunity to, to deal with God and to allow him to deal with you. Ask him this morning. We're gonna give you a couple of minutes in just a moment. Ask him this morning in the silence that we give you to show you where you're trying to shape him to fit your sensibilities. 
Where in your heart and in your mind you are trying to take what he has said about himself and the words that he has given his people and trying to shape them to be more convenient for you. Where are you not letting God be himself? Where are you choosing aspects of his character and aspects of his word to receive and others to ignore? More plainly, where might you be guilty of the same thing Micah and his family find themselves guilty of out of which God had to rescue them? Where is respectable idolatry showing itself in your life? We're gonna take a couple of minutes and give you time and it's time for you to deal with him. It's time for you to ask him to show you It's time for you to take what he shows you and confess it and repent and come to him and receive him as he is this morning. So I'm going to pray and we're gonna give you that time. And then as God's people who have known the goodness of God, the goodness of his grace through the person and work of his son, we're gonna respond to all that God is for us by receiving communion together, remembering this morning that God has revealed to us in the most perfect way the fullness of his character and he's done it in his son and he's called us to respond to him and to receive him and to worship him. And we're gonna do it together this morning in communion and then we're gonna sing are gonna be sent out from here as God's people. So let me pray for us. And then I want you to take the time that we have and we're gonna give you to deal with God and to let him deal with you. Father, we thank you this morning for the truth of your word and the exposing power of your word. Lord, let us not find ourselves content with respectable idolatry. Let us not simply shake our fingers at at the worship of false gods. And let us not just be really good at identifying where hearts, our hearts and the hearts of others are given over to the gods of our day and our time. But Lord, help us to be honest and open for your Holy Spirit to show us where in our own heart and our own mind, we're guilty of creating a God that seems right in our own eyes and not receiving you for who you've revealed yourself to be. Lord, we want freedom. Lord, we want to be free from this. Lord, show us that we might repent and run to you. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name for his glory, for our joy. Amen.